My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Man, I know I say it a lot, but I'm super excited about tonight. In the studio, retired senior chief with over 21 years in the U.S. Navy. He spent 20 of those years with SEAL Teams 1, 5, and 3. He has deployments to the Philippines, Iraq, Afghanistan, and numerous other spicy locales. An expert in explosives, he coordinated over 10,000 explosive breach entries in his career. Now he spends his time with his charity, Tier 1 Outdoors, which provides hunting and fishing opportunities to military and law enforcement that gives them the rest that they need so that they can go back and be the family member or friend that they know and they are known to be. Additionally, he coaches girls' youth rugby, and he strives to give future generations the help they need to become the leaders of tomorrow. Please welcome a father, Navy SEAL, coach, and someone I am proud to call my friend, Dave Winkley. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here and uh, ready to get this going. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited you're here, man. You have such an interesting career, and not just because of the job that you did, just the way you went about it, getting it done, and just the different places that it's taken you and how it's taken you there. Because I think you would agree, you and I talking, you have taken some side roads back onto the main road and just kind of all over the place and still continuing to get every single thing you set out to do done. Absolutely. I've been extremely fortunate uh, just to be able to pursue the career that I had and all the different opportunities it gave me throughout my life. Uh, you know, some good, some bad, but that's a, what creates us uh, in the end. And, and when we were talking, we talked about early life. So you were born in Kansas, you moved to Huntington beach, California, then you moved to Plano, Texas, um, and, and you kind of moved around now, do you think at all that I won't say nomadic lifestyle, cause that's not a ton of moves, but do you think that kind of helped you out in your career having that military nomadic lifestyle? Yeah, a hundred percent. Uh, I, I've just had a, a family friend the other day, they had to move to Texas, uh, from here in California. And one of the, you know, their younger girl was upset. She's one of my rugby players. And I was like the best thing I think in my life you know, not the best, but one of the better things was that we moved around. It forces you to find friends and create, you know, uh, uh, you have to be able to pick up and move places and just, you know, create a new lifestyle wherever you are. And that's what the military does. You're constantly moving, constantly, you know, meeting new people and you have to be able to forge relationships wherever you are, whether they're with Afghans, with Iraqis or Yemenis or whoever it is, you have to be able to forge a friendship, quote unquote, to be able to get your mission done. Yeah, and I think even to take that a little further, I think you have to be able to forge friendships quickly, too, um, especially if you're moving around. Like if they just move now, you know, they're coming right back into the last semester of school. Everyone's kind of set in their ways. And if they're coming from California to Texas, it's going to be definitely a different world down here, whether that be in going to school, going out in public. It, it's handled a little differently here than it is in California. So I think that's going to really expose them in more than one way you know, saying it's going to expose them to a lot of different stuff here. Yeah, for them, it could be a culture shock, but I swear they, they weren't real Californians anyway. Uh, you know, they, they had Texas in the heart in the beginning. So 
I think when they get there, they're going to find a home real quick. Do you think that uh, you're Texan at heart, or do you think you're a Californian? Oh, oh no, um, not a Californian at heart at all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's sad, and I, I hate to admit it, especially here in a public venue. But I've lived in California longer than I did in Texas, uh, but I still call it home. And uh, you know, when I talk to some of my buddies back home, I talk to Marcus and Morgan, and they're like, "When are you coming home?" And that's still what it is to me. But uh, I don't know if I'll ever make it back there. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I had talked, um, about being here and just the, the different way that it's looked at, but, but I would even say that I think Texas is losing a little bit of that too. Um, this whole, I think culture has kind of shifted, whether it be California, Oregon, Texas, it hasn't been as extreme here in Texas, but I think it's definitely the world has seen a change in culture. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the past, you know, several years with the pandemic and everything else. I mean, you know, it's quite the odd times to be living. Um, you know, I tell my daughter that as well. I'm like, this is, this is a strange period. This isn't the normal thing. You know, everything's kind of turned on its head, public perception of, you know, our government officials and what they're telling us. I mean, there's a lot of different things to, you know, go down numerous rabbit holes on, but it's, it's not the same life just, you know, four or five years ago. Well, speaking of Morgan, uh, he's now running for office, um, and I, I think he wants to kind of bring back what you and I are talking about. I think he wants to bring that non-political politics back to government. Yeah, absolutely. He'd probably be a, a very good candidate to do, do that exactly. And I think that there is like, I, I want to say there's like five or six retired SEALs that are running for offices from all over the United States. It's a it's a pretty big organized campaign um, to get some of the stuff that we have in Washington out and this new kind of generation in. Yeah, I love it. Getting uh, America's, you know, war fighters that have seen it and they've been there and they understand what's important in life and then getting them into a position of, you know, in Congress or Senate or whatever it is just to bring a modicum of reality to their life uh, in Congress or the people have been there for decades upon decades. You know, they don't know what real life looks like. Well, and, and let's go into that a little deeper. When we talk about that, what do you think that they're going to bring different to the government? I think you and I uh, kind of have the same idea of what they're going to bring. But like you said, those war fighters that know what it's like. But when they're coming in and they're new and they really haven't learned how to navigate D.C. yet, because like you said, they're war fighters. They're not politicians. Uh, I think you would agree they have a big wave to overcome as they insert themselves into that they have a bureaucratic issue to overcome and that would probably be the hardest part you know and and different you know thoughts i've thought maybe i'd do that one day just to be able to bring some of my leadership to that and just that thought of the the bureaucracies and the committees and and trying to move something through and and then the inner politics you know in between your own party and against you know the other party unfortunately it's like it's just the bureaucratic nonsense seems to be the hardest part. Now I'm hoping, you know, Morgan and a guy named Brady Duke out of Florida as uh, a good buddy of mine. And I'm really hoping they'll be able to overcome that bureaucratic process and not just kind of get sucked into all of the nonsense and in in what is the swamp. Yeah. I, and I agree. And I, you know, when I, when I look at it even more, you know, you have a couple of guys, but then you, you get guys, you know, that, that we have from, uh, say Texas, like Dan Crenshaw. Mm -hmm. um, he takes a lot of heat for decisions that he makes. And so I think that he, like these other guys, has the problem of 
people look at them and think they should always vote in a certain way, talk to certain people, only do things certain ways. And so they've, they've kind of got that double-edged sword of where they get stabbed on both ends of it because people don't think they're doing exactly what they should. And then the other side thinks that they're too aggressive or that they, they are taking the wrong measures. And so that, you know, they kind of get hit from every direction. Yeah, absolutely. Dan has a very unenviable position that he's in. A lot of SEALs are very critical of him. Uh, I've worked with him before. Uh, you know, we're not personal friends or anything, but I've, I've put him through training when he lost his eye. He's trying to go back through CQC and he's a fighter. He is determined. He's extremely intelligent. Um, but he gets, like you said, he gets a bad rap from from ultra conservatives like, oh, my God, he voted on a, a you know red flag law. But, you know, he had rationale behind that. It was a tactical move on his side to be able to get other laws, you know, um, you know, either revoked or or, or not passed. I, I can't recall what the situation was, but he, he has some strategy in there. And I just hope he isn't falling into, you know, what is the swamp and kind of backsliding from what his you know morals are. I don't think he is. He's not that kind of guy, but he does get a lot of heat from just about everybody. Yeah. And I think I, you know, and looking at, at Morgan and the man you mentioned, I think that it's going to be the same thing for them. It's going to be the same kind of trouble for them. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I think Brady Duke's going to do very well out of Florida. He's a, you know, strong Christian man, um, very strong moral fiber. He's just, he's the guy you want there. You know, he, he doesn't have a, an ounce of sliminess in him. He is just too good of a man. Yeah. Very, and very, you know, you, you talk about Florida. I mean, they, they've got a governor that, you know, he's kind of like the Texas governor. He doesn't really care um, what people think either. He's going to do things the way he's going to do them. And I, I it's kind of refreshing to see it because I feel like, you know, and, and it happens all the time. The pendulum swings both ways. But I feel like we, you know, had those four years and now we're swinging so hard in the opposite direction to get away from that, that it's going to lead to trouble sooner or later. Yeah, absolutely. It's just this massive polarization that we have going on when, or, or maybe it's perceived polarization. Maybe I think it's, that's probably, you know, if you talk to everybody, you know, through your travels or through your podcast or through your current job, I don't think we're as bifurcated as we think we are. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, I completely yeah. agree with you. I think that's the glimmer of hope that we have is that we're not quite so divided as a nation. We just appear to be divided. And I think we would get down to brass tacks. You know, we have a lot more in common then we don't, um, you know, I was really hoping the pandemic might actually bring us together kind of like a nine 11 sort of scenario where it's like, Hey, we all have to get on board, but then it turns so political and it, it fractioned again. You know, it's like whether you, you know, follow the science or you're a Fauciite or wh whatever it's going to be, it's just, uh, it, it fractured us into even more you know, smaller splinters. It's funny that you mentioned nine eleven because I want to talk about that now. All through your early life, you were obsessed with becoming special forces. First, you wanted to be a Green Bray, then you came across the book Rogue Warrior, um, and you decided you wanted to go to the SEALs. Now, I never did, but after I saw the movie Navy SEALs, I really was thinking in that direction. Um, but you always wanted to do that. That was what your goal was to do. Yes. Starting, starting from very early age, like it was always playing army. And once I learned what the green berets were, I was like, Oh, they're the best of the best. So that's what I want to do. And this is where I want to go. And that's kind of how I led my life. I knew that would be my end state would be in some sort of special operations. And then, uh, of all things, I was going through driver's ed, you know, as you do in Texas at JC Penney's, 
<laughs> and you, uh, you know, you walk the, you walk the mall at lunch hour and I was walking through the bookstore with my buddy and there's this book and this hard looking man, you know, staring back at me from the book cover and, you know, founder of seal team six. I'm like, well, I had to read this and I could not put it down. Uh, I was driving, you know, in the bus to football games, uh, I played at Plano East and we're, you know, we're driving to a game and I just would not put the book down. Like they're like, all right, get off the bus. I'm like, ah, shit, I gotta go. Um, but once I was done reading that, I'm like, okay, that's settled. I know where I'm going to be. You and I were talking and you said that you had, um, you were listening to the JT Patton episode mm -hmm. and, and we were talking about, you know, at one point we had mentioned, could they get someone that's used to these, uh, foreign dignitary parties? Could they do the job out in the field? And then could you get these guys from the field to do these foreign parties? It's what strikes me strange about you. And a lot about you. You're a huge guy. You are um, very much primal. And we talked about it with the hunting and all that kind of stuff. But you're almost a renaissance man. You read. You do music. You build things. That is what I think sets these special uh, soldiers apart from everyone else. Have you found that your whole life, that's always been kind of that way. Cause you just kind of explained it where you said, I'm, I'm on the way to a football game and I'm reading and people think like, who the hell reads on the way to a football game? But you did. Right. Uh, that could be the highest compliment you could pay me is to say that I'm a Renaissance man. Um, you know, I, I'm not there yet, but one day maybe I will be. Uh, I, I remember learning that concept in high school and I was like, that, that is something that rang true to me. I was like, you should, you should be able to change your tire, change your oil, make uh, beef bourguignon you should be able to do you know all these different things you should be able to speak elo eloquently and also say fuck shit and damn in the same sentence uh with you know religious fervor it it, it just uh that is how i've kind of modeled my life was to learn different things and you know i, I take a lot back from you know seneca where he's like you, you need to be bettering yourself every day take away one quote one new fact and always make yourself better every single day and and that's what i have tried to do I feel like uh, when you stop trying to better yourself is when you really start dying. Well, and, and we're going to go into this a little more, but let's kind of point at it now when you say that, when you stop trying to be better. What I've noticed in, in law enforcement and from talking to guys in the military that have gotten out and retired and then seeing guys in law enforcement retire, what I see happen is they give their whole lives, they give 20, 25, 30 years to this career, to this goal, to this mission, and they retire and four months later, they're dead or they're sick or they don't know what to do or they're they're bad into the bottle or on pills or whatever. It's a epidemic that we're going to talk about, which your charity helps out with. But how do we get that across to our guys getting out of the military? Because I think that message is very much, even to this day, very much lost on our guys getting out there. Thank you for your service. We're going to replace you. Move on. I can't speak to the other branches. Um, the, the SEAL teams have done a really good job uh, with creating a transitional phase. Um, so the message is resonating a little bit, but there's still a lot more we could do. And I think that's where the nonprofits come into it. You know, when you exit the military, there is this um, program called TAPS. It's a transition, uh, transition assistance, something or another. And the only thing I got out of that class was I, I built my resume while I was there and I, I subscribed to LinkedIn and it lasted a week. <laughs> So, 
there wasn't. I, I probably bought way too many things on Amazon just sitting there bored off my ass because it, it wasn't relevant and it was not geared towards special warfare types. It was maybe geared towards some guys who were getting out of the service that had done 10, 15 years, um, probably hadn't seen any combat, and they're just, you know, here you go. Um, so at least they're working on that a little bit. Uh, but you did hit on something that's very important to me, which is, you know, like you said, why we created Tier 1. And it's like when you get out and you lose that sense of drive, that sense of purpose, uh, the Japanese, I think, called it like uh, Ikigai, where it's like if you don't have a drive in life, like that's when you're just going down the drain. Um, and that's something that's very personal to me. I've only transitioned a, a year, not quite a year ago now. So I was afraid of that. I was a little afraid when I got out. I was going to find this lack of drive, this apathetic you know, look to life. And I didn't, thankfully, and, and I feel wonderful, and I'm so glad I'm out and able to, you know, create the charity and coach rugby and all that, but that's my ikigai, you know, that's, that's my drive is helping others, you know, through this. Do you think that is in due part to ha- having a supportive wife, having a supportive family behind you? Absolutely. With, without, you know, them there to, to be my, you know, my shoulder to cry on type thing. And, you know, it would just be, I, I can't imagine it. I, I know guys have gotten out, they're single, they're divorced, you know, their kids moved away, they get out, they lose that drive. And, and like you said, they hit the pills at the bottle. Uh, they just become, you know, shells because they, one of the problems is people tie their identity to being a SEAL, being a police officer, uh, being a SWAT member, whatever it is, they tie their self-worth to that. And I was afraid of that as well. When I got out, I was afraid that my wife even asked me, she's like, well, when people ask you what you do for a living, are you going to kind of cringe when you can't say I'm a SEAL? which I normally didn't say anyway, but it's one of those things, you know, you kind of get a pound your chest. You're like, yeah, this is what I do. And I was like, I I don't think so, but that's something I need to be aware of is, is my self-worth tied to my identity as a seal or as a preacher as, or, you know, X, Y, and Z. Well, so how do you think we get past that? Not, not necessarily saying you or me, but the (laughs) normal guy that's getting out, that's not really thinking about that because I think that, all a lot of people are really thinking when they reach that retirement age is what do I got to do to get past this? And and it was kind of brought up. There was a guy that I worked with that retired today and another guy that had retired probably a year and a half ago shows up to it. And he tells me and the guy standing there, he says, don't ever pick your retirement date, have someone else pick it for you and make it a surprise because the day you figure out the day you're going to retire, That's all you focus on for the last six months, year, whatever it may be. And you need it to become as a surprise. You need to let it kind of happen organically for you uh, because you might miss out on something before that happens. And I think that's generally what a lot of people think when they're getting out. They're just ready to start that next chapter. But when they turn the page and they get to that next chapter, it's empty. Yeah, absolutely. That's an interesting concept to be kind of surprised by your, uh, your retirement date. I like that. Although it wouldn't work with the military lifestyle. There's so much paperwork you have to uh, just plug in with that exact date. Um, But, uh, you know, to answer your question, how do we get past that? um, A a lot of it, I think, just has to be education and not just like your classical military education or even from university is something that we need to bring up and talk to guys with about, you know, tying self-worth, you know, to their identity and and having that um, that plan for life afterwards all these guys in, in, you know, spec ops and, and SWAT teams, they're, they're driven, they're type, you know, they're alpha personalities, they're driven folks. 
and they need something to keep driving with. Otherwise, they go down, you know, into some bad, bad areas. So that that's something I think frank conversations um, is probably the, the first step. You know, if, if something can be created where you come in during those transitions, especially, you know, we have the the big Navy transition, which was next to worthless, but then having another one that's centric to, you know, SEALs, SWIC, or EOD, and and specifically the guys that fought in the war for the last 20 years. When we talk about those guys that have fought in the war for the last 20 years, you did an interesting thing that I talked about. Now, we're going to go back to your college, but... You not mm-hmm. only finished your associates, you finished your bachelor's and you finished your master's. Some of those while on deployment. I don't think that a lot of people look at education as being as important as it needs to be in life. They focus on once again, that career, that job, and they don't look at learning around them. Uh, I always tell my daughters that no one can ever take away how smart you are. That's the one thing they can't take away from you. How important is education to you with these guys? It's it's hugely important. And that was one of the things for my last appointment. I was telling you that we got a lot of our guys signed up for, you know, just some online courses, utilizing their tuition assistance, working through the bureaucracy of getting, you know, the Navy to pay for your classes. And we got a lot of different guys signed up for schooling. And, you know, I, I kind of, I didn't want to, you know, drive it home to them too many times because you stop listening after you know so many times but i I definitely would talk about like hey like education is key the navy is going to pay for it and you need to take advantage of the military for all the different programs they have because they're sure as shit going to take advantage of you for everything you have yeah i i completely agree now i want to go back to kind of the college thing now i've Uh always laughed when i talk to you 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 left college with three hours left to join the Navy, you had one class left, but the the drive was just killing you too much and you had to go. So you go on your first deployment, you finish your bachelor's, correct? It was at the end of my first deployment. We turned around and I actually got my degree on the second deployment. But yeah, it was a, it was a quick turnaround. But yeah, I finished it while I was on my first in Iraq. And then while you're finishing your last class, your team is actually getting mortared. And you're, you had just been ordered and you're talking to the teacher about finishing the class up and graduating. First question is if you would have stayed in school, you would have finished. Okay. You could have been an officer. You could have been a cake eater. Does it change for you? If you finish, do you still go the route you did or do you go officer and, and Maybe not special forces, uh, any kind of special operations, uh, Navy SEALs, anything. Does it maybe change for you? I don't believe so. I had met a SEAL uh, that was going through school when I was there. Uh, he was from SEAL Team 4. I'd see him at the pool once in a while, um, and we'd chat uh, just a little bit. He wasn't very open with, uh, with me about discussing much. But he basically gave me the best piece of advice. He's like, you want to do the job of a Navy SEAL? I was like, what do you mean? It's like, do you want to be a sniper, breacher, JTAC, comms guy? Do you want to be the guy beating the door down and then making entry on bad guys? I'm like, absolutely. That's exactly what I want to do. He's like, then don't be an officer. So that really took me aback. I'm like, ah, maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm like, okay, it it really hit home, especially after reading Marchenko. You know, you're hearing all these crazy things he did as an officer. Like, God, officers must be doing some, you know, crazy cool shit out there. But uh, that was the best piece of advice. So when I got in, I still had that idea, like maybe I'll do two enlisted deployments and I'll go officer route and then I'll you know do that. 
um, after the first deployment, I'm like, no, like enlisted is exactly where I want to be, regardless of my education level or anything else. Do you think knowing that before you finished that class, do you think that went into part of your decision to leave and go in the Navy? No, I don't think so. I think the drive was so, it, it, I was being pulled there. I, it was something, it was gravity. I, I could not fight against it. It was just, this is what's happening. We're going to do this. I'm going to enlist and I'm going to get going. And I, you know, my college career was, was fine, but I always was thinking about the teams. There was nothing else. I really was, you know, I don't think I enjoyed my college experience to its fullest because I was constantly thinking about, Hey, I need to be training. I need to get smart. I need to make sure I'm ready to roll um, and get going with, uh, with going in the teams, just getting past that, that buds, you know, monolith that's in front of you just like god i've got to get past this thing like i don't care how i've got to get past it so sooner rather than later it has to get done so i just said fuck it with three hours left it was a philosophy class um (laughs) (laughs) which i actually really enjoyed when i finally sat down and looked at it i can see that yeah instead of just poo-pooing it and just like it's philosophy what do i care this doesn't affect my life this doesn't affect the things in front of me right now so fuck that class. Let's go and let's get into the teams. And then, you know, finally it was like, yeah, I probably ought to finish that. Cause there's just like one thing I haven't accomplished. I need to at least get that degree done. If I, if I think that I know one thing about you though, I think that class now probably meant more than a lot of the other classes that you took. Absolutely. The classes, uh, you know, I'm a criminal justice major. So I really enjoyed uh, the, the idea of criminal justice and, and laws and, and tactics and all that. Not that they get into tactics overly, um, so, but the two classes I probably enjoyed the most were art, it was art history and the philosophy class. The rest of them, I just feel like were just filler. I think they made me really think. I, I think art history was one of my favorites too. One for, I like art, but also there's no wrong answer in those classes. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's whatever you think the answer is. It's a little hard to argue with what someone feels art is. So um, I, I, I did always enjoy those classes though, because they, they, they give you the ability. And I think it probably paid off for you in the military to be more of a free thinker than set down a path. And you have to go this way. You're always trying to think outside the box. Absolutely. I think a lot of my life, I was kind of like on that straight and narrow rule follower. Didn't think out of the box as much as I would have, you know, liked to admit, you know, as a kid, I think it was kind of, everything was very black and white. And then as I progressed, and got in the SEAL teams and started, you know, okay, now, now I really need to be more of a free thinker, um, you know, and do my own education. I think that's where that really came in was like, you know, okay, I've, I've had a university experience. I've had the high school experience. I need my own education now, which would be, you know, reading and, and you know, exploring art on my own, not inside of a, a classroom setting. Now, talking about your career, as you leave college, you go into the career. Now, you have something special about your career. You got to see before the Guat era. It wasn't very far before, but you saw before it. And what I've heard guys say before 9-11 happened that went in and SEALs that have went in and said that they were worried. They, They looked around and they saw some guys that had been in for 15, 20 years, and they'd been once twice to do something and they were really worried like oh man i might not ever get to do anything then of course 9 11 happens the global war on terror happens and then you guys are busier than you can even schedule in your books yeah. um let's talk about 
before and after. Now, I know it was a short time, but let's kind of talk about how the military felt in those times. Absolutely. And it's, it's something funny that struck me with uh, Mr. Patton on your uh, podcast was, was calling it the Gawat in the military. It's the GWAT. And so every time he said it, I'm like, God, what acronym is he talking about? And finally, I'm like, oh, the GWAT. Oh, we, <laughs> I thought it was some uh, intelligence gathering acronym that I had no idea what it meant. Uh, but yeah, we'll go with uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, as I uh, got to my first SEAL team, SEAL Team 1, uh, Delta Platoon, um, disillusioned to, to say the least. First arrived, you know, no one had seen combat. Um, the only guys that really seen anything were from SEAL Team 3. They did some boardings, you know, off the Persian Gulf, you know, no shots fired. It was, you know, my deployment to be looked like going to Thailand, Guam, you know, the Philippines, and and really not doing anything. And that really didn't sit right with me. I was like, you know, they're discussing Thailand and all the things that come with that, you know, the different uh, liquor and, and uh, experiences you can get there. And I was like, that's not why I joined. I didn't join for that. I joined to go to war, you know, of course they look at me like, yeah, well, so did everybody. And, you know, I'm not special in that regard, of course, but it just, it was, there was disillusionment all the way up until even post nine 11, I was sitting on weapons, watch uh, camp Pendleton and watching the planes, you know, fly into the towers. Right. And even right then it was like, we're going to war, like, you know, not great, but this is what we signed up for. This is what we're doing. We're going to war. That platoon went to, uh, to Guam. So it's like, what, what value added there are we in Guam? Well, so let me ask you. So when you see that you you and I had talked about that a little bit um, and you were, you were kind of watching the TV and you saw it, you think that, Hey, we're going to war. Do you ever think at that moment? And I know you probably didn't, but we're going to be at war for the next 20 something years. Or did you think we're going to go over there, do our job and we're done with this? I was thinking something more like Operation Just Cause or Urgent Fury, like this is going to, we're going to go in, punch them in the dick as hard as we can, try to set up some semblance of a government and get out. Uh, yeah, definitely didn't see this being my entire career, uh, you know, 20 years of, hey, we're at war. So in saying that, is that a good or a bad thing? Because you wanted to do, but then you kind of maybe reached that level of, I guess you would say burnout. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but 20 years is a long time. It is. It was a good thing for what I set out to do. I, you know, my intentions were I wanted to go out and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to lead men in battle as their chief. I wanted to, I wanted to see Afghanistan. I wanted to see that countryside. I wanted to fight the Taliban. Uh, so all that was a good thing. And as we were wrapping up my final deployment, it was really winding down. There wasn't not a lot going. So I think it was about the exact I could not have planned out my career any better. If I, if I, you know, had, you know, the, the, the puppets and I was creating my own, you know, life, uh, for theater, it, it wouldn't change much from what I did there. It was about the right amount of time. That's uh, that's a good thing to hear because some, uh, some people say it wasn't enough time or some people say they wish they could do more. Some people say they wish they could do maybe a little less time. You know, it's, it's funny. I think I've got my fill, you know, and that's one of the things people have always asked me, like, did you, you know, are you happy now that you're out and you feel like you're missing out on something? I'm like, no, not at all. Like I, you know, I had a magical career. I got to do all the things I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to go out to development group. I never quite made it out that way. 
um, just due to circumstance and, uh, it, you know, I would have liked to have done that, but I don't feel slighted in my life for not going. And just when you, when you get down and sit with some of the guys that have done other deployments and then you, then you talk about your deployment, they're like, God damn, how did you do that? How, how are you in the Philippines and you got in an ambush? Well, like we're going to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of stuff doesn't happen very often. It's almost like, uh, for a while, it's kind of a magnet. I think that, uh, you know, just wherever I was, was going to, going to be spicy. I told my boys that when we hit Afghanistan, I'm like it's, it's going to be spicy where we are. So I want to point out something. You see the pictures that we're posting up here, right? You can see them on your screen. Mm-hmm, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Young, young me. I, I noticed something in looking at your pictures. I noticed mm-hmm. that you kind of look like someone. So I did a side by side and I want to see if you agree with me. So we see this picture right here. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I'm going to change it to this one. Oh, I was, uh, I was expecting either Chris Farley or Matt Damon. So that's uh, no. much better. <laughs> you, you can see it, right? I'm not yeah, crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a, that's a handsome man there. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, I, I was looking through and I noticed when you look back at these photos and, and you got some great ones that you sent to me, I'm going to show them all throughout the show, but you, you have these great photos uh, and, and these things that you did. When you look at a photo like this, because I know from law enforcement, I can look at a building or um, maybe a location in the city and, and remember something that happened there. When you look at a photo like this, does it all come rushing back to you? Yeah, I can smell that tent. Really? I can, the, I can smell the dust and the rat droppings. Uh, we always trying to capture the rats on some, um, some hydrogel that we use for breaching. Yeah, I can like, I can, there's a chair off to the right that was just dingy as could be. And, uh, yeah, I can kind of smell the entire thing. So oh. <laughs> when, now this one looks different than all of your other pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this one, you look different. I, I almost think that this one is, um, maybe further into your deployments. That was the same year as the other one. Um, we were doing direct action missions out of Al-Assad, um, heading into Fallujah. We're going all the way out to the Syrian border and Korean village. Um, we were hitting Ramadi. We're, you know, just doing, doing our thing, doing what SEALs are supposed to do. We were unilateral. We had no other uh, Iraqis with us. So it was just us, which was a great time. Uh, then we shifted and became um the psd element for the vice president of iraq so that's when we first got to baghdad i don't think we had slept in multiple days um we were told basically by the state department hey you're protecting uh, the vice president he's kurdish um no one likes him obviously because he's kurdish everyone's going to try to kill you uh we haven't slept it's hot as shit out and that was the picture that was taken it was like me just like fuck well, let's talk about that because I, I brought that I, I wrote that in for the next thing to talk about when you go to Iraq. So you're assigned to protect the vice president of Iraq. When this information comes to you, uh, that's more of a protective service thing. Do you think that that's taken away from that direct action that you're doing or by them telling you everybody's going to try and kill you? Everybody's going to try and kill him. You're like, well, fuck it. Whichever way we go, we're going to get into some some battles. No, it was, it was a letdown. In fact, uh, I think it was one platoon from the East coast, which seal team two was there. And one from the West, if I'm not mistaken, were assigned protective duties. 
And, you know, we're, we're on chat or whatever it was back in 04, you know, talking to our buddies like, ha sucker, you know, go protect these guys. And we're going to be out, you know, killing bad guys. And then like, you know, 45 minutes later, if that, <laughs> Oh, guess what? Pack your shit folks. We're out of here. And no shit. I've never seen assets move that quickly. There's like these black C one thirties landed in Al Assad and they're like, grab your shit. Like we drove our vehicles on board. They were all, uh, all the armored ones we had. All of our gear was on it. They're like, stay in your vehicle. Don't get out. Shut the fuck up. And off we go. Landed Baghdad. And then there we went straight into protective detail after maybe two hours of protective training. You know, we had to get like the the driver set on how you're supposed to be driving that way. Um, how the, the diamond, the inner and outer perimeters worked. And they're like, figure it out on the fly. And your boy is landing at HLZ Washington in like an hour. So good luck. So it, it didn't, it was a letdown. It was a challenge, which I appreciate, uh, especially for our leadership, you know, looking back like, wow, they really had to jump through their ass to get this done. It was a great challenge, but it was taking us away from that direct action mission, which is what we signed up for blowing the guy's door down with a large amount of explosives, you know, ripping them out of his you know house and, you know, four o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, that's what we really wanted to do, but it was still an experience and it still has plenty of fun stories of just crazy shit that happens when you're, working PSD in Kurdistan, drinking scotch. Well, so with that, how long are you on that detail? Uh, that was probably four months. I think we had uh, two months of direct action missions. Then we pushed off to Baghdad, uh, maybe maybe four or five months. I think what a lot of people want to know that, that weren't over there or didn't work those kind of jobs, how were you guys treated from the people that you're protecting? Are they happy you're there? Are they, they don't want you there? What, what's kind of the feeling over there? Because I don't think that's something that gets across in the news. Um, they just see what's going on, not necessarily the feelings of the people behind it. Now, are you asking as far as the guys we're protecting or as far as like the general population? Well, let's first do the people that you're protecting and then we go into the general population. So the people we're protecting, that was a uh, Roush Shalways. He's a, a Kurdish, um, you know, politician, very well connected, uh, lives in the smallest, you know, hut there is uh, for a vice president. Um, but he was extremely grateful. Um, he's a Kurd. So he didn't have the same animosity that some of the, the president and the other vice presidents and the prime minister may have had towards the other guys. The other guys were, you know, really pushed off and not really, there was, there was no friendliness with them at all with the other, um, principles as they're called in, in protection. The other principles didn't seem to have a lot of uh, interaction, but with Roush, we all had plenty of interaction. Um, about every two weeks we'd fly up to Kurdistan, go to his personal vineyard where he had this beautiful cave in the side of his mountain full of wine. And he put on a <laughs> massive barbecue for us. He had a uh, belly dancers for us one time when we were leaving. And uh, there was a, a warm relationship there. Um, he's a very stoic individual, which I appreciate. Um, you know, you didn't see him smile too often, but when you did, you know, it was very genuine and it was, um, it was good to see. So it, it didn't feel quite like family or anything, but it's like, it was a warm relationship with, with Roush and with his family. Sometimes his kids came out and they jump in the car with us. Well, that's, it's good to hear, uh, stuff like that. Uh, especially, you know, it's funny, it's funny how you always ended up where there was good food. Uh, good, good liquor and, and a good time. Um, let's talk about that though. When you go to a place like that and you see this cave, you know, where this guy lives and he's got all these wines and everything. 
it it's got to be kind of blow your mind a little bit to see everything, especially at the level you guys are seeing it at that micro level uh, of all the transgressions that are going on, all the difficulties that are going on in that world. Then you fly there and you see a completely different world. It's got to kind of turn you on your top a little bit. A little bit. It's looking back on it. It's surreal at the time being, I think we were so locked on to what we were doing. I don't think we recognized what we were experiencing, but when I look at it in hindsight, I'm like, that was, you know, a remarkable experience. Like you said, sitting in the cave, or there was a bunch of, you know, local women who were crushing the grapes with their feet, you know, to make the wine. It was very, you know, I was like, if, if we didn't have a vehicle here, we could just pretend that we were in the, you know, late 1700s, you know, there's, there's not power. There's not anything. It's just, it's just, um, like I said, it's very surreal where we were, uh, you know, we, we actually went up to um, the president of Kurdistan. His name's Barzani. We went to his place. And uh, I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. We pulled into our parking spots and we, you know, got the vice president out. We moved tactically and get him, you know, inside and all that. And there's an H2, you know, Humvee sitting there, which they were the hotness in 04. And it had Texas tags. <laughs> I was like, what? I was like, I'm in the matrix and something glitched. This has to be wrong. And I met the gentleman inside and he lived in Texas. And after the invasion... And, you know, somewhat peace was resolved in Iraq. He took his Humvee and went back to Kurdistan and worked with the president. I'm like, he's like, oh, yes, we have we have two uh, Humvees in all of Kurdistan. I have one. I'm like, <laughs> so I guess he just kissed the Texas plate just to let him know, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I wish I had a Texas flag on me. I would have just flown that off as an antenna or something. That's we did that. In, uh, we did that in Afghanistan. We just throw the Texas flag up there for fun. So. The wine there compared mm-hmm. to the wine that you have now, does it? And the reason I ask this, I know it sounds like a dumb question, but <laughs> you just pointed out that it was such a surreal moment when you're there and you drink that wine. And now when you think about it, does it hit you differently? I, 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 I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago that when he very first became a police officer in New York, his, his father brought him into a steakhouse that was connected to the hotel that he managed. And he says that the night that he got all of his friends dinner, he can still stay, taste that steak to this day when he thinks about it. Same thing with you on that? No, um, I wasn't quite a wine aficionado at the time. Um, I, I, that was probably one of like three glasses of wine I probably ever had. Uh, I appreciated it. And I, you know, I'm trying, now that you mentioned, I'm trying to like look back on it and I can't for life tell me if you tell you if it was sweet or dry or earthy or anything. I, I just recall the picture. All of us were sitting in the cave, um, you know, had our M4 slung civilian clothes and all had a, a glass looking quite proper. Uh, I, I recall that, and then I can that can bring me into the state where I can almost smell that cave again, and kind of the the dampness and how much cooler it was in there by uh, the you know the Kurdish outside. Let's move forward to two thousand five, uh, mm-hmm. over in the southern Philippines, uh, <laughs> namely the twenty fourth and twenty fifth of November. Now you guys were accompanying the fifty third Infantry Battalion uh, on Operation Shadow. So first you can explain what Operation Shadow is. So the best of my recall, it was a way to basically cut off the Abu Sayyaf group. That was one of the main terrorist groups down there along with the Jislama Islamiya. Um, so the Abu Sayyaf group um, were on Holo in a central area. It was called Mount Tumatongas. And 
they're very central that location and they basically wanted to squeeze them from all directions they had naval ships with um you know naval guns uh kind of in a horseshoe around the um that side of the island and then they're just going to patrol through and try to squeeze them to a point that they get stuck and then get eradicated because i don't think people look at I, I i think the general public looks at at um Iraq, Afghanistan, that's where the main stuff is going on. Iran, Syria, they don't think about the Philippines and other of these areas where these groups are running through and kind of building up little tiny armies and stuff. Um, can you kind of talk about that? Because I, I really don't think that a lot of people know about those kind of groups that were around. And if you said you were in the southern Philippines, they'd be like, yeah, so what? Who cares? Right. I think everyone thinks uh, the Philippines is Manila. And uh, there's there's quite a bit to that. I can't remember how many different islands there are. It's an astronomical number for for one island country to have. Uh, but yeah, I mean, everyone was focused solely on Iraq and Afghanistan, and and no one was paying attention, at least in the media and in the in the public, didn't really understand that there was a very prolific four prolific terrorist groups in the Philippines: the JI, Busayef group, MNLF, and the MILF, which everyone loves to talk about the MILF. That's the Moro Islamo Liberation Front, but they have a funny name. Um, so you had these, you had these four different groups, yeah. <laughs> and I'm so thankful I haven't had a TBI moment. I can recall the different acronyms, but uh, yeah. So uh, hey, uh, listen, you told me that you might not do that well, and I think you're doing fantastic so far. Uh, thanks so much, but uh, yeah. So so down in the Philippines, you have all, you have these four main groups who are kind of you know vying for power. What they want to do is separate the southern Philippines from the rest. And create what they call um, oh, there we go. The uh, it's basically the autonomous region of Muslim Mindanao or the ARM. So that would be a separate country altogether. They want to basically move away from being part of the main you know body of the Philippines. Because you got to think most of the governing bodies, most of the politicians are all from the north, and that's Luzon, and that's Catholic, and these are all you know about ninety nine percent Muslim down there, and they're you know, Islam came to the Philippines, I believe in the 1500s. And most people probably wouldn't know that, you know, their first mosque was like 1533 or something around there. So Islam has been there in the Southern Philippines forever. And they have some of the same radical ideologies as bin Laden and everyone else. A lot of people from the Philippines went off and trained in Afghanistan with the Taliban, with Al Qaeda, and then brought those techniques and tactics back to the Philippines, which kind of leads into the story on the 24th or 25th. Uh, you know, we, we didn't know what kind of tactics these guys were hip on. Well, whenever you go in there and, and you are seeing this for the first time, um, the big problem that, that you kind of pointed out to me was that there was like serious deficiencies in, in tactics and kind of just knowing how to, I mean, the, the way you describe it is just knowing how to move, be in the military. I mean, these guys smoked and joked a lot. They sat down. They, you know, there was all kinds of things that they were doing wrong. So as you come into that and you see that you're going to have to train these guys because this is a war that has gone all over the globe now. What are your first thoughts? Because you as a trainer, especially and an instructor, you have to be looking at this differently than everybody else. Yeah, well, I'll kind of paint you a quick, quick picture of how this all came to be, if you don't mind. Sure. We we started off doing a logistics run, and I was with the Green Berets at this time. Um, I got put in a team guy timeout for a hot second. 
uh, for pissing somebody off. And they put me with a bunch of Green Berets from First Group who were awesome stand-up dudes. And we're just doing a logistics run. We're dropping off MREs on, on this hilltop. And while we're up on this hilltop, they're like, hey, if you want to watch, there's a battle going on down in the jungle below us. And I'm a huge history buff, by the way. And so there's um, there are Sky Raiders, which is a prop-driven close uh, attack uh, aircraft. Um, if you ever seen uh, Flight of the Intruder, they talk about Sky Raiders. Oh, yeah. So there are, there are Sky Raiders that are doing these gun runs with OV-10 Broncos marking targets. And these are coming in. Then I've got UH-1 Hueys, you know, doing circles on the battlefield. And they've got little birds flying around. It's just like, I'm like, I'm watching Vietnam in front of me right now. You know, they're calling in arty strikes. It's just like, I was like, where the fuck am I right now? I'm watching a, a, a Sky Raider, an OV-10 Bronco call CAS, uh, close air support. I'm like, that's crazy. And then we decided to camp out that night up there on the hillside and hang out. I mean, this master sergeant from the ODE team. And then the next morning, they're like, the commander on the ground is an 06, I believe. And he would like a C2 node of Americans. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck you mean. He's like, well, because of his rank, he's allowed to have Americans on the ground right there at the battle to advise him. I was like, oh, shit, that sounds like something. So we get into a slick, we fly out, get dropped down into a schoolyard, get picked up by a half track, and we go through the jungle. We get out, and there's just there's a dude on a horseback with no saddle. Uh, I was like, I don't, I, I, again, there's a, there's a glitch in the matrix. I don't know what the fuck was happening. And, you know, we're, we're standing there all tall and proud, got the rifles up, you know, hanging out. And, uh, you know, the, the colonel's kind of down low, and he's like, oh, we've had an experience with the enemy. I'm like, sir, where where's the enemy right now? He's like, oh, 150 yards up that hill. I'm like, God damn it. Like, immediately sought cover, felt like an asshole. You know, I was like, damn. Like, okay, so the bad guys are on top of this hill. They have the high ground, and we're just sitting here. I'm like, neat, cool. And then, you know, the master sergeant pulled me over along with the two other Green Berets I was with. And we're like, these guys are all Muslim we're dealing with. Like, the good guys, the bad guys, they don't speak Tagalog. These guys speak Taosug. They probably don't want us here. They probably see us as a threat. And I'm talking about the good guys, the 53rd IB. And I'm like, okay. He's like, so just watch your back. And we're going to go on patrol and we're going to see what we can do for these guys. Um, so I'm like, okay, you know, sir, where are we going now? He's like, well, we're going to clear the Busev's headquarters on Holo Island. I'm like, okay. So that's what we're doing. Cool. Um, like a plan. Proceed. Yeah, absolutely. We proceed on through this, this, this does circle back to the, uh, the, the poor, uh, soldiering skills. But as we're pushing through, we get through the headquarters, nothing happens. There's nothing going on. I cleared all the buildings with the, the green berets, um, mindful booby traps and all that. And then I see this big mound of dirt that's very freshly dug, which is a you know high indicator of an IED. And I grabbed their EOD guy. I'm like, hey, man, come here. Like, take a look at this. And he just steps on it with all of his might. I'm like, what the fuck? He's like, it's fine. I was like, if you ever do that in front of me, I'm going to fucking kill you. Like, right now. I was like, don't do that. And he kind of like gaffed it off kind of thing. You know, I'm sure there's a, a bit of a language barrier. He had a little bit of English. I was like, okay, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with that level of, uh, you know, they don't have any fucks to give. You know, it's it's very prominent in the third world. You know, I don't think life is nearly as precious uh, in some people's eyes there as it is with Americans or with first world countries. Um, can yeah, can was, I stop was, you for just a ab- second? Absolutely. 
So from a training standpoint, because you're you're there as an advisor, but you're also kind of training them. And when you realize that, like you said, there's zero fucks to give, how do you approach something like that? Because they don't give a shit if they learn. Uh, humor and also just hypervigilance, just making sure that between the Americans, we're like, hey, if anything happens, we have each other. You know, I didn't know these guys, you know, hardly at all. We we just met, you know, maybe a couple of weeks prior. I'm like, we have each other. We're going to make sure we all get out of here. And, and that's that's our end state is we're all going to leave together and we're all going to leave in one piece. And and trying to train them on the fly. We, we did help train them on the fly, but I knew that most of that was going to just be bouncing off of them. They're just going to, they, they will tell you the exact right way to do something. Um, as far as like, uh, disabling an IED, there's something called like a remote pull. They get a ton of rope, they pull it off, make sure there's nothing that's a pressure release mechanism. Um, so they could tell you, they could tell you word for word, exactly damn near verbatim of textbook, how you do these things, but then you go to do it and they don't do it out of, uh, you know, who knows why. So I knew we weren't going to get through them, but all I was concerned about was the Americans. I, I can see, but you know, with you being hypervigilant, that, that adds a whole new level out there because you're not only watching you and the guys around you, you're also watching the guys that are supposed to be watching you. And it, it kind of ends up in just one big circle. Yeah. And, and when the gunfight happened, uh, you know, we can get to that in a minute how that all went down. But when the gunfight happened, uh, M 14 gunner behind me, uh, cracked around right over my head, impacted, you know, feet from my head, you know, and, you know, I turned around with my M4, I pointed it directly at him, flipped off fire, you know, put it on fire, started sl squeezing slack on his face. And he's like, Oh, sorry. I'm like, I don't believe you, but all right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that like, like, you know, that's why I was saying, uh, I was like, you know, this, the whole Philippine experience is a great thing to talk about. Cause it's just so it's absurd. The, the entire thing is absurd. Yeah, I, I agree. So when, <laughs> when we go into that, you, um, some of the problems that you said that, that you sent to me that you were talking about, you said that they carried their M 16s over their shoulders. They grasped them by the barrel. Um, mm -hmm. they said, uh, no patrol or fields of fire were designated. Um, lack of diligence by the UD. We just talked about that with the guy jumping mm -hmm. on the, the possible ID. <laughs> um, so how do you even, you saw the battle going on before the day before, and it was a heated battle the day before, I guess I, I need you to describe how these people act, not only on patrol, we kind of pointed out the things that they do wrong, but just how they're kind of paying attention to patrol and how they're paying attention to their surroundings. And then we'll talk about when the two command uh, detonates go off. Um, but let's just talk about them on patrol. It really looked like they'd been out in the field too long and just stopped caring about life. There wasn't any due diligence on anyone's part, except for maybe the commanding officer. Uh, maybe there's a couple guys that we talked to that were kind of, you know, down with being more tactical. But for the most part, like I said, like like you mentioned, carrying the M16 you know, by the barrel over their shoulder, uh, no regard for, for booby traps or anything like that. And they had two tracked vehicles that had 20 millimeter coax, you know, weapon systems on them you know, fully armored, they're at the back of the patrol. So this is supposed to be an IED route. I'm like, well, why don't you have those up here? And this is way before people were doing 
um, you know, a shape type charge to penetrate armor. This is before that. So I was like, there's no reason why you can't have your track vehicles up there. So I went to the track vehicle guys. I'm like, why aren't you at the front in case an ID goes off? They're like, oh, no, no, no. Back here. We're in the back. So, like, I mean, there, there was just no rhyme or reason to anything they did. Okay, so we'll get into it. So after you're on this patrol, you're hit with two command-detonated IEDs. It's followed by small arms fire and an attack on a village. Uh, Buanza, is that how you call it? Uh, I don't exactly recall. I'd have to look back through that. Yeah, I think it's the village of Buanza is what you said. Okay. But I don't know how to properly say it, so we'll go with that. Probably, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, just like the Guad, it's Buanza. Um, yep. <laughs> okay, so um, after the blast, security kind of goes tight, and everyone kind of gets their head on straight. But then you told me, like, right after that, they go right back to just being normal. Well, so what, what initially happened was the uh, detonation goes off, and they were daisy-chained together which was something we were wondering if they did that, where they connect one IED to another IED. So if this one detonates, it detonates the other one as well. We weren't sure if that was something that had made its way to the Philippines because we didn't have a lot of experience in this realm. Um, so I was actually talking to the colonel. Um, detonation went off. It blew us all to the ground. And you know, I'm just kind of staring at him lying on the ground under this table. I'm like, the fuck was that? You know, and it's funny, the, the best description of the explosion was it was the loudest quietest thing i've ever heard in my life it was initially just this crack that was so loud as you know probably over 100 pounds of ampho uh, ammonium nitrate fuel oil buried in the road this is a big boom it's a big bada boom and it goes off and it was loud for a microsecond and then it was quiet no noise so i'm just like staring at this kernel under the desk like almost no noise it wasn't the ringing it wasn't like saving private ryan where it's like ooh, i don't know what's going on it was just like quiet and all of a sudden I could hear again. And I'm like, did you call in a artillery strike? He's like, no. I'm like, huh. Still not knowing that this was an IED. And then as my hearing, I think, came back even further, I realized that small arms fire is coming from the high ground. And now we're starting to hear the snap, shrek, crap. Now it's starting to go. Now I'm like, oh, oh, right. This is an ambush. Okay. So it took a, took a, you know, that in my mind, it probably, you know, took minutes, but it was probably seconds that we realized oh, hey, this is an ambush. And they have the high ground, which is not the uh, most uh, enviable place to be. And then from there, I wouldn't say their heads were screwed on right. They fired in all directions, which we call like a death blossom. They just shot every direction. So the master <laughs> sergeant and I are really trying to figure out where is this coming from? Because just everybody's shooting. So I'm like, well, fuck, are we surrounded? Or are these guys just incompetent? And thankfully, it was a ladder. So, you know, we basically crawled around every guy. I'm like, what are you shooting at? They're like, nothing. I'm like, stop. Okay, you, what are you shooting at? Nothing. I'm like, you stop. We did that enough to the point we realized it was coming from this one central area. And, in fact, around after the M14 gunner damn near shot me, another round came down and hit right in front of me, threw dirt onto my face. I'm like, okay, okay. Here, here we are. We're right here. This is where our field of fire needs to be. And we started directing the Filipinos to fire in those fields of fire. There they did a fine job. That was that was no big deal. They did a good job. The funny part is those two tracked vehicles, the two you know heavily mechanized pieces of machinery, those guys were having lunch at the time, had little fold-out tables, and were having some sort of you know rice and fish. <laughs> 
when the gunfight ensues, they pull their lunch inside the thing, shut the door, and do not turn it on. They don't get the guns up. Uh, for all I know, they were still having lunch. And there was a poor bastard infantryman just like pounding on the rear hatch like, let me in, let me in. No, no, man. no way, man. Not opening this door for anybody. <laughs> well, let me ask if if everyone is Muslim, bad guys, good guys, everyone, what is kind of the what's the idea of fighting over there? Does that make any sense? Oh, <laughs> well, it does to rational people like us. But as far as the way I boiled it down for some of my guys, younger guys, I'm like, we're simply a pin in a map. Like you'd see on an old World War II movie. They're like, oh, I've got my Panzers here and I've got my Luftwaffe here. We're simply a pin in someone's map somewhere that says U.S. Navy SEAL, like one platoon in the Philippines. That's 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 the only reason we were there. You you can call it counter-China. You can call it counter-terrorist. Uh, you know, there's a, a huge kidnapping thing that was going on in the Philippines with the Busef group. You could call it that, you know, anti-kidnapping. But we were hamstrung so bad by the Filipino government, we weren't actually allowed to do anything. The The only reason we went out on that op in Holo at Tumatongas was because some odd loophole in their law said if there was like an 06 on the ground, we could be there. So there really was no true strategy or mission that we're supposed to be fulfilling other than training these guys once in a while. We'd train them up. You know, I actually found a better group that I work with later, another Marine Corps group. We trained them up in CQC and intelligence gathering, and we actually uh, PID'd some uh, positive, positively identified some some bad guys and actually made some good work. But where we were at that time, uh, there was no strategic value for our presence. So in saying that, no strategic value. Did what you did over there do any good towards the, I guess you would say, the greater cause? No, no, not at all. It, you know, it, you know, we, we were able to actually get some intelligence that helped get uh, a guy named Umar Patek uh, killed, and he was the Bali bomber. Um, so a little bit of that intelligence helped drive another team to, to help get Umar Patek killed. You know, maybe maybe we scratched the surface on changing a little bit of the mindset with the guys we were training. But, I mean, the smallest, most minute amount did we have any real effect. And even years after years after years of SEALs being there, and we realized this isn't the mission we want to be on, uh, MARSOC took it over. And we're like, oh, thank God, go MARSOC. Have, have the Philippines. And then I think after a while, they realized like the, 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 there's no strategic value of us being there. This is not what we need to be involved with. But there's a little flag in someone's map, said MARSOC. <laughs> the next question that would come from that, do you think that there are places on the planet and and i don't want to say any in particular that are just futile no matter what we do no matter who we sin no matter what our objective is or our goal is doesn't really matter i would have to say that afghanistan is probably going to be one of those just if you look at history okay. i think you and uh, you and mr Patton had talked about that where it's like look at your history i mean who all went through there alexander one of the greatest armies ever goes through there and gets whacked you know, the Mongols came through there. Genghis Khan and his guys came down through there, got stopped. The English, you know, the, the British Empire, the sun will never set on the British Empire. Well, sure as fuck set there. They never made 
headroads into these countries like like Afghanistan. It's just it's the people, it's the terrain, it's the culture. Um, do I think we were wrong for invading after nine eleven? Absolutely not. Don't want absolutely. to give that. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, we we needed to punch them in the face multiple times for multiple years. Um, but that place, I don't see how one could ever get in there and fundamentally change how that place exists now. Well, then let's use Afghanistan for an example, then. Mm -hmm. If no one could ever change it, one, why do you think that place is so different from everyone else? Why has it lasted so long? Because that whole area has been around forever. We all know the history, the the Crusades, everything that Mm -hmm. have gone. Why is that place so different than everywhere else? If I had to take a stab at it, I'd have to say it's the terrain. The okay. terrain is gothic. It's gnarly. It's it's some of the craziest terrain I've ever seen. It's beautiful, but it does not lend itself well to occupying or advancing an army through. There are so many places if you took a Alexandrian sort of army through there, you're going to be channelized. You're going to be slaughtered. It's just it, the terrain itself, the harsh, harsh winters, the horrible summertime, all of that doesn't lend itself well to, you know, some guys from, from Greece or from anywhere else for that matter. I mean, we can always adapt to our environment, but not as well as they have for centuries. So I think that, and just they're, they're a hardy people. They're different than Iraqis or different than Kurds. Anyone else I've ever worked with, they are some hardy people, which I do appreciate. I really enjoyed my time in Afghanistan uh, and meeting these people. Can you tell me how they're different? Uh, can we expand on that a little? Um, kind of rednecks versus city folk, I guess. Okay. That might be the best way to look at it. These are hard scrabble, uh, you know, folks from Appalachia type thing. They're not going to take shit from anybody. Family is their key. They are very hardy because they've had to be to survive. You know, they, they don't have a lot there. You know, they have very little but then when you look at Iraqis, they had a laziness to them based upon partially their climate. They had power. They had, you know, they had the niceties in a lot of places, not everywhere, but they had a lot of niceties and they just were a softer people. Afghans were hard. And uh, we actually had a guy that we worked with. Uh, he was a, a warlord is the best way to describe him. Uh, Haji Farid John. And this guy just was maybe six, four like ghostly gray eyes had a gnarled hand from getting it beaten by the Russians and funniest sense of humor I've ever seen, man. It's just like so cool to meet people like that, but he was hard. I guarantee he could easily be like, he dies and someone would die. It's, it's interesting to hear that from the ground perspective of it, especially when you say that, you know, rednecks versus city folks, um, that they're all about family. They're all about this. But then you look at the dichotomy of that place, and yeah, they're all about family, but there's massive atrocities going on there to the women, to to the human trafficking that's going on. Everything that's going on, I mean, they're, they're a huge opium producer for the world. I mean, heroin is coming out of there, and, and they've got their hand in almost every, I guess you would say, criminal activity that's going on right now that's big and kind of has the spotlight on it in the world. And it's so crazy to hear the dichotomy that that they are so uh, 
prehistoric. Can we use that word prehistoric? And at the forefront of the future with everything that they're doing. Yeah, it's it's a Paleolithic existence there. It's it's funny, like you see a, a small earthen smokehouse outside of someone's house. And I had to ask, I'm like, what is this for? And they're like, well, they smoke the meat because they don't have refrigeration. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like, it's very, you know, Paleolithic. There's not a lot there. Yeah, they have vehicles and they have AK-47s and that's at the extent of their amenities. But you're right. There, there is a dichotomy there with how they treat their women, how they treat their children, which that's just a, a, a horrible thing in a lot of in a lot of different ways. I'm sure you've heard of, you know, the childhood rape and, and things of that nature. Um, so my praise of them doesn't, you know, I don't gloss over those things that Absolutely. are just, just horrific um, that, that that do happen, and and they do have their opium and they have their poppies and they have all that, and that's such a common thing for them it's part of their lifestyle it's not something that's new this is centuries old uh you know their their production it's not like they're um just getting into it now to, to turn a dollar it's something they've done for centuries you know we worked with the governor of um logar and we'd be at his house we'd be having tea or, or whatnot and you know he'd pull out a, a black you know bar of things and he'd take a little razor blade and he'd cut off a piece and eat it and we're just kind of staring at him he's like oh it's it's headaches but you know he had black tar heroin basically right there and that was just something very common he would he would ingest just uh i mean when we when we had wounded from the afghans you know we had militias you know these guys weren't you know regular army guys these were just militia good old boys that are out there getting after it on our side of things trying to keep the taliban out of their area so they could actually prosper and they'd come in with a mass casualty event and they'd be you know wounded and before our doc would push you know, any sort of narcotics, you know, it's kind of like looking at him like, Hey, ask him if he had any, you know, medicine. It's like, Oh yeah, a little opium. Like, Oh, okay, good. So you've had opium. So now you can't have ketamine. Great. But it was something that just, you know, our Western mind didn't really think about until, you know, a few times that happened. We're like, Oh, so the second they get shot, they're kind of like, Oh, opium or heroin (laughs) or whatever they had in their pocket. I'm like, what well, was the one from American Gangster? They're using a blue magic out in the field. As soon as they get mm-hmm. shot, they're popping a little packet of blue magic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's been in their their uh, handbook for years. One more question about Afghanistan. I want to move on to sure. some other things that you did with how we left there. Mm. I I need to have your thoughts on it. I ask a lot sure. of guys that come on the show, but I I need to know from a guy that was there because what we hear a lot is people ask the question: Was it even worth all this? all the time, all the, the personnel, the, the money, uh, just these guys over there, the biggest thing, was it worth it? That's a tough question. I mean, the way we left, no, it wasn't. We could have left so many other ways that would have been better for Afghanistan and for our personnel and to make better use of our nation's, you know, best soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen and our national treasure. We could have done it so many different ways. It would have made it somewhat worthwhile. Somewhat. You're never going to change that place. Like we already talked about, of course, but the way we left, like, I don't think you could plan a better fuck up than that. I don't think you could sit down with the best group of fuck ups and plan something worse than what we did. Okay. It's that's pretty cut and dry in my book. There could have been so many other ways you could have done it. And I'm not a strategist and I don't pretend to be one. 
I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, so I'm not going to say I am one. But I'm a tactician. That's what I did. I do the the small picture tactics, not the big picture strategy. And even from my seat, I can see that things could have been done a hundred other different ways than the way we did it. Then let me ask you, and this might be a crazy question from it, but how did it go so badly? You just said you could get the biggest group of fuck-ups in the world and they Mm -hmm. couldn't plan this out. So how do we, with as much history, with the tacticians that we have, with the intel that we have, how do we fuck this up so badly? You know, not being on the ground, I don't want to assume too many things. But to me, it screamed of politics and people not telling the highest level leadership to include the POTUS hey, this is what needs to be done. We need to be doing these things, not these things. It seemed a lot of, you know, when you're dealing with someone of a very high rank, you tend to tell them what they already know, not what you think is best, or at least that's what a bureaucrat does. So I I see a line of bureaucrats all saying, oh no, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be great. And the Afghan army is going to last for months and months and months. It's going to be a, a tidy withdrawal. Um, it just seems like people are just placating, you know, the Joint Chiefs and, you know, the POTUS saying, no, no, this would, this would be great. This is a great idea. So it just seems like, uh, you know, uh, politics got in the way of common sense, which has been kind of the trend since, you know, Korea, especially Vietnam. Politics get in the way of good war. Yeah, uh, but I I almost think, you know, how we talked in the very beginning about a polarization, a fracturing. I think that now more than ever, would you agree? Maybe other than maybe Vietnam, the politics are really what's running the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just on the forefront of our everyday lives, and that was never really the thing. It's like the executive branch, I mean, weighing in on things that has no business weighing in on. And it's just, it's putting politics at the forefront of our lives and it definitely doesn't need to be there. Uh, I mean, I think that kind of started under the uh, Obama administration when, you know, there's the, the Harvard police officer, um, you know, stopped a gentleman and then they had this beer summit. I'm like, why are you involved? Why are you talking about these things? You're not a police officer. You're not a mayor. You're not a governor. You're not in the realm to even discuss these things. So stay out of it. And don't chime in. It's not your business. But he's trying to be a hit president, trying to be that guy, you know. So yeah. that that's one of the things that that really thrust it to the forefront. Is these these things like that, where it's just like, oh, I, I need a politician, or I need a, a an executive to tell me, you know, what to think, what to do. Which I think is what happened with the exit of Afghanistan. They made it more about the politics of it and what the president was saying. But I don't want to dwell on that forever. Let's sure. move on. I want to talk about one other battle that, that you were with uh, in the Battle of Ramadi where you relieved T.U. Bruiser. Now, um, T.U. Bruiser was, according to the Internet and different things, the most decorated unit ever. Lots of very famous team members. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go in there and you replace a team like that because you relieve them, um, how is that? going in there to relieve that is there pressure on you is it just business as usual what's it like going in there and relieving something like that 
what weighed the most on us was how kinetic it was. So, you know, whether they did a good job, bad job, decorated, not decorated, that didn't really matter. It was like, how kinetic is the area we're going into? They had had multiple wounded, two KIA, uh, one critically wounded that later died um, during surgery. So, you know, th this was this was a big deal. This was something that we had not seen before in Iraq. There was, you know, onesie twosies, guys dying in different places, but this was in the same area in the same span of time. It's like, we're going to Ramadi. And that really, even the word Ramadi now still just like conjures up memories. Just like, holy shit, that place, you know, and you don't even, you don't think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, but then you run across the guy you're there with. And it's just like a flood of images come back and, and memories. You're like, holy fuck. And you know, you, you say something innocuous, like place was crazy. Like, yep, that was crazy. All right, cool, man. High five. See you later. But uh, yeah, so it wasn't a, a huge weight on us as far as like filling Jocko Willink and Leif Babin's shoes as far as, uh, you know, T.U. Bruiser's leadership. It was more, we need to get in, do our job, bring everyone home and, and try not to get anybody killed, which was a much bigger burden, obviously, than, than anything else. Well, can we talk about, like you said, the it was very kinetic. There was stuff happening there that wasn't happening everywhere else. You were having onesies and twosies all over, and this place was different. What made this place different, and what drove that kinetic activity? So there were two huge urban, well, I want to leave out Baghdad. So it was three major urban battles, and one of them being Fallujah, which happened in 04, uh, where I was at for that one, initially they did um, a siege. They siege Fallujah, and then they declared a ceasefire. And that's where I was there for the ceasefire. I'm like, well, fuck, guess we're not going in. And they allowed everybody out, man, woman, and child, that wasn't a warfighter. They're like, if you want to come out, you can come out. Um, you're going to come through our checkpoints. If you're a bad guy, we're taking you away, and, and that's it. And then whoever's left, we're going to come in and we're going to fight. And that turned into quite the quite the shit show of a fight for those guys in Fallujah. And, uh, I think I was 05. So with Ramadi, they tried something different. They're like, we don't want to do this encirclement, the siege. Like we're going to go in to the most dangerous area. We're going to build a command outpost called a cop. And we're going to keep doing that. And we're going to keep occupying. We're going to occupy. We're going to occupy. We're going to keep pushing. But when you do that, you're creating bad guys in a 360 degree you know, perimeter around you. No matter how many different streets you lock down, from any direction could be bad guys coming for you. It's, it's pure guerrilla warfare. And it's a very urban city. We had, you know, main thoroughfares. We had four lane, uh, maybe up to eight, uh, probably four lane roads, maybe bigger than that. So, it, you know, large thoroughfare, you know, large city buildings, huge hospital, and the enemy entrenched. They're like, we're staying. They knew at the time if Ramadi fell, that was the end of Anbar. So that was like, they call like the gateway or the key to Anbar province was Ramadi. If that fell, the rest of the Western Iraq was going to fall and they basically would lose, you know, the momentum they had or they perceived to have. So that's why they really dug in and were like, we're not fucking leaving and we're fighting and utilizing guerrilla warfare, IEDs, rockets, mortars, everything else. They did a damn good job of defending that city. In their thinking, though, they don't want to do another siege like Fallujah. Right. Isn't what they did, though, technically, I mean, and, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, 
Isn't that just a slow siege? In a way, but like at least in the siege, you kind of do it. They did like basically overwhelming. They, yeah, they enveloped the entire thing and said, you can come out. And if you stay, you're hostile. So that means as you push through the city, you would push through in a line. You'd, okay. you'd be going together with, uh, I believe there's one Marine Corps and three army units who were pushing through and they pushed through together. And that left no bad guys behind you, theoretically, if you did it correctly, because you're killing everything because they're declared hostile. Okay. If you have a weapon or don't have a weapon, it doesn't matter. You're dead. So that way, that's why it's so different between that siege and then this command outpost thing. So if I had a, a male walking around in the daytime, well, he doesn't have a gun, so I can't do anything about it. Whereas a siege like Fallujah, he's walking around in the daytime post-siege, he's dead. Can I ask which one's better? For the overall population, I would assume it's better to do what we did in Ramadi, where we tried to let an assemblance of order go on. They could stay in their homes, and you didn't have a mass exodus of people. And one of the theories, uh, you know, if you, if you ever get a chance to talk to Jocko, he probably uh, knows more about this than me. He's uh, such a well-educated man, but it seemed like a lot of the bad guys slipped out of Fallujah and just parked their ass in Ramadi. So like, you know, they go through the checkpoints, they didn't carry any weapons. They maybe had women and children with them. Then they just got in there. So that's one of the problems with the siege mentality is you're potentially letting bad guys slip through and they're just going to occupy new terrain. In fact, that's what happened in the Philippines with Holo Island is they just moved to another Island. And then you do the same thing and they move back. So at least with, the Ramadi style is that we occupied so much terrain. They no longer had freedom of movement and they kind of on their own were like, all right, fuck this place. We need to find a new place to go because these guys have it. So I didn't really answer your question. I kind of gave you both sides. What, no, 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 that, no, I no, And you're exactly right. But I think that like when you say when they're just moving through, like when they go out of Fallujah and they go to Ramadi, they don't carry weapons. They go with family. I think that they look at that kind of how they look at law enforcement where it's kind of uh you know is it worth it does it does the ends justify the means and they say yeah look we took this whole city some of these guys might have slipped away and got to another place not thinking shit we're gonna have to fight those guys down the road they're just thinking look we took this whole city and they're looking at it in look we reduced crime in this area yeah you just pushed it to another one yeah that's, that's all you did gentrification you have the gentrification of different sub, you know, suburbs or, you know, urban areas where it's like, oh, this place is a real shithole. Oh, look at all these cool businesses that came in and they pushed the crime out and now it's a safe spot. Well, yeah, next door. They went next door. Like, right. You're, you're not solving the, the crime problem or the, uh, the militant problem. You just pushed them somewhere else. And so that's why I kind of ask, which one's the best one? Where do you get my question kind of, I guess, boiled down to the most simple where do you get the most bang for your buck? As far as an American's perspective, looking at it, I feel like you have more control as a soldier pushing through a population deemed hostile. Yeah. So as you roll through anyone I see that's not wearing a uniform of an American is dead. In Ramadi, we were discerning shooters. You had to be. Not only for from a moral standpoint, but from a legal standpoint, you know, I don't want to shoot a civilian, you know, end up 
uh, you know, being pulled back, you know, a la Eddie Gallagher and being put on trial in front of America for something that I was, you know, not, not saying that's exactly Eddie's situation, but I'm like, I don't want to shoot somebody thinking they had a weapon system. They didn't. And now I have to possibly, you know, you know, go to a UCMJ or a court martial. In fact, I had that happen when I was in Ramadi. Um, there was talk of me going home due to a guy we shot. It was a clean shot, but the family claimed we murdered him. And we didn't. But the initial reaction from NSW, from, from the leadership, was we were guilty before innocent. And we were going to go home and we we're going to stand trial. And this is right when Haditha was going on, the Haditha Marines. And it was like, it was almost like case closed. I'm like, fuck, we just like, you weren't even on the op. And you know, the, the guy was like, well, this is, a, this is a one way conversation, you know, go fuck yourself kind of thing. I'm like, how do you expect me to do my job and kill bad guys out here and do righteous shoots? If you're going to fucking question everything I do. And it was a clean shoot. The army investigated it. They came back, said, good job. That guy was a, a major terrorist in the area and good work. But from NSW's perspective, they, they had already, Damn near closed the book on it. That's good. You down know, the side rabbit hole. You no, 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 and and but you you bring up a good point. You can you can almost co-locate that with everything that's going on in the United States with law enforcement shootings right now. Is it's guilty before proven innocent, um, and you're you've got a you've got a problem with people sometimes second guessing themselves, and and you can't have that in places that you were in places that some of these guys are working. And, and you've put so much emphasis on the wrong that you don't even look at the right anymore. Yeah. Law enforcement has a very unenviable position to be in right now. It's like you clear leather and you're pulling out slack and you're thinking about the second and third order effects of your shoot while you're still in the midst of a gunfight. It's like, oh, what's going to happen to this? Oh, who's videotaping this? What's happening? You know, all the different things I can't imagine going through people's minds you know, and people oftentimes are like, oh, you're retired now. You're going to be a cop. I'm like, no, no. Why would I do that? I'm not that crazy. Like you guys, like I can't imagine pulling up to a car that read a re run a red light, has tinted windows, and you're going to cite them for running a red light and you get blasted by a double barrel at the back. Like you're at a disadvantage as a law enforcement officer in Afghanistan and Iraq. If I don't like what you're doing, my rifle is raised my safety is off and my slack is pulled and I'm about ready to send it. If you are driving your car too close to me, I'm pulling up and I'm going to let you know, I'm not very happy about it. I might give you a warning shot across your car or you might put it in the driver's side, depending on what he's doing. Cops don't have that luxury, nor should they. Obviously we don't want a police state where cops can just run rampant, but God, that is split decision-making skills you have to have. To pull over someone, you're like, oh, guy ran a red light. Okay, no big deal. And then you're you're getting shot at by multiple directions. Like, no, fuck that. I don't want to do that. I'll leave that to you guys. Let's put your instructor hat back on for a minute. Mm. It's one of my favorite hats. I'm going to go law enforcement, but I want you to, to talk about this. Mm -hmm. When you talk about that, pulling over someone with uh, for a traffic stop, or they're pulling out slack, and they're thinking one, two, three, four down the road of everything that's mm -hmm. going to happen to this. That's, of course, a training scar. It, it absolutely is a training scar. How do we train those out of us? How do you train to, to think about what's happening right now, not four steps 
knowing before you get to that first step, you've already thought about the, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not even a thought. I don't think you can train that out of it. I think what you have to do is build um, an honest discussion with your PD. So with your police department, with your city government, that they're going to have your back or with your union, however you want to look at it, they have to have your back. They have to go on the officer's side of things like, hey, we're not going to assume guilt right out of the gates. We're going to protect you. We're going to do everything we can. But with social media, the regular media, all of that, I don't know how you do that these days. This is nothing we could do on the range. On the range, there are other things. As an instructor, you know, I, I see guys, you know, they clear leather, double tap, and they get their gun back in their holster as quickly as they can. I'm like, stop doing that. You're putting your gun away quickly. And there are reported cases of guys having a shooter, they clear leather, shot, shot, back in, and the guy's still advancing with a knife. They're like, oh, whoops. They're doing muscle memory. They do what humans do. So, like, you can train those skill sets and those muscle memories, but you can't train trust. You put that in a, put that in quotation somewhere on the podcast, can't train trust. <laughs> Does this transfer from law enforcement in, in the United States over to the military at any point? 100%. 100%. That, I mean, as we saw with, you know, with, with Eddie, uh, my scenario, thankfully, wasn't public. And there's been other guys that are just like, you know, they get raked over the coals for something and they end up being not guilty and being, you know, doing heroic action and doing a great job. And no one apologizes. No one comes out and does a public, you know, retraction. NSW never came out and did a retraction for Eddie. They're not like, sorry. Well, we misspoke and we jumped to conclusions that weren't true. And he was found innocent by, uh, you know, a jury and are bad. None of that ever happened. He's still a pariah among, you know, leadership in the military. Like, so yeah, the the overlap is, is very similar. Um, unfortunately what we have to deal with in the military is the UCMJ, the uniform code of military justice. It's, seems to indicate guilt before innocence, unlike, you know, a, a civil affair as a civilian. And, you know, we're, we're subject to double jeopardy as well. So we can be tried both in civilian courts and in military courts. Um, it's a lot of things that just don't sit well with a lot of guys. You're like this, if you fuck up, you could be looking at a lot of pain and, and military jails and, you know, military prisons like Leavenworth, that's, that's no joke. I don't think that sit on the forefront of most people's minds when we were doing the work, but after I was talked to about this investigation for this uh, alleged crime, like that said heavy on me. It's like, well, fuck, like, are you going to send me home and put me in jail? Cause that's what it felt like. And, and you know, at the time, you know, we're like, uh, if I go home, like I'm going to Mexico, I'm, di- I'm divorced. Uh, you know, I'm, like, I don't care. Like, fuck, like, I didn't, I didn't trust in the judicial system at the time in the military and, and with, with good cause. When I saw Eddie get raked over the coals, I'm like, like, oh, this is what would have happened to me. Yeah. And, and you're right. I had Eddie on the show a while ago. And when we talked about it, I mean, they fucked that guy every way they could, every way they could to mess with him. The, the thing that was interesting to me about Eddie and about uh, there, there was another guy, Keith Barry. I don't know if you know him, but he was accused of sexual assault and it came out, you know, he went to prison for three years and then they found out it was all made up with your incident. 
Um, all of those things come up. What seems interesting to me is they never seem to focus on the people that are bringing this up. And that's what kind of, I don't know if you'd say pissed me off about the situation, mm -hmm. but you have the same thing in the United States in law enforcement. You have these people that are making up stuff and, and it came out in Eddie's thing. And, and, and you and I haven't talked enough about your thing for me to know all the ins and outs of it. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Eddie's thing um, and all these people came out, yeah, we made that up. Yeah, we did this. Yeah, we did that. And not one of them. The only thing that he was found guilty of was taking the photo with the dead person and everybody that accused him was in that photo and not one thing happened to any of them. And it doesn't make any sense to me at all when we're talking about that. You have these guys that are putting it on the line. These other guys, I don't really know about them. All I know is it's it's very uh, not very honorable to do the things that they've done to put those guys through what they went through. And then for no punishment to come, that sets a bad precedent. It, it 100% does. I mean, it's you can see that in our society as well. When someone claims, a, you know, a, a false uh, racism charge of getting acid thrown in their face and then get a noose tied around their neck and the whole thing never happened and they're still beloved by the media. I'm like, where, where's the culpability? Where's the, where's the responsibility that person has for, for breaking the law and creating a, a false charge? And yeah, you don't see it because that's where the politics creep in. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I love being out now is that I'm, I'm free of that political bureaucratic nonsense that this machine, that's what it is. It's a machine. Absolutely. And, and I believe roll forward. Absolutely. They, just, they consume everything in front of it. And I believe going back to Eddie's thing, I believe that people were trying to make their next star, their next rank. I believe that people were purposely doing things in order to move up those levels. Absolutely. I've always jokingly, uh, as I've gone through the ranks, I'm like, Hey, never, never trust anybody. That's a E eight and above. I'd say that as an E seven, uh, as a chief. And then when I made senior chief, I'm like, never trust anybody that's an E nine or above. I always made it one rank above me. Right. Um, but, but it was, you know, I always like to use humor in, in most things. And, and that was, it was true though. It's like, I don't trust anyone that's about above an O three. And I sure as shit don't trust anybody that's above an E eight. It's, they get consumed by this political rapture. They just get drawn into it. Not everybody. There are exceptions. And I'm sure some of my friends that are higher ranks are going to be looking at this like, what the fuck? Like, right. You're not the guy I'm talking about. I'm talking about the one, you know who I'm talking about, where they just get ensnared by this rank and by this political structure and constantly moving up the chain of command and, and goes back to, they're the people that tie their, their self-worth to their identity. No, I'm a master chief. I'm a force master chief. I'm a whatever you call it. I'm there. I'm the guy. They're ensnared by that. And they just can't lose that power. It makes them create this. They have decisions or create um, policy that is detrimental to us, but it helps them add another star or to keep them moving up the ranks. That's why, you know, uh, I think it was military.com had an article. They're like, most of your good officers get out at O three level. It's a hilarious article. I'm just like, they get out as an O three, either the extreme high performers get out at post O three level. So post Lieutenant in the Navy, because they're going to go to a fortune 500 and make millions. And I know so many of these guys, 
your poor performers are going to be peered out and they're not going to do well. So what you get that rises through the ranks are your middle of the road guys, the guys that just kind of make it. They go with the flow. They're the ones who make Admiral. Get along, go along. Yeah, absolutely. There's always exceptions to the rule. I don't ever want to, you know, cast too wide of a net. But yeah, the guys that get there are the ones that just kind of they're mediocre. I know plenty of officers have gotten through. I'm like, oh, that kind of sucked. No, he's a captain, huh? Okay. I mean, sucked. <laughs> but didn't suck bad enough to get peered out. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm well, sure you see that in the police department. Absolutely. Absolutely. You'll see guys that, that will test for, let's say, sergeant. Mm-hmm. They'll make sergeant. You have to go a six-month probationary period after you make that rank, and then you can um, be a lieutenant. But you don't have to go that six months to take the test to be a lieutenant. So you can become a sergeant, take a test for lieutenant the next day, and as long as you make it through that six-month time period to keep that sergeant rank, you can be promoted to the next rank. And you see it happen a lot. Guys that are just trying to – I've got a guy that uh, 15 years together, he's already a chief. Now – don't think that doesn't make me feel bad about my fucking life, but <laughs> really <laughs> but, underachieved there. <laughs> yeah, you no know, shit. I I really uh, but but that's the whole point. It it's you either like what you do or you like where you're going. There's there's campers and there's movers. I think uh, one of my buddies, what do we call it? Renters, squatters, and owners, is how he described seals, uh, squatters guys that kind of just they go along to get along it's that that shitty officer that somehow makes it to captain they um, want their name on a on a uh, piece of gear when they get out and say that absolutely. they were a seal yep or they want to be a politician they want to say yep. yeah I was, I was this that and the other um the renters you have guys that you know mainly enlisted types they do a little bit of time they kind of do the job okay they get out and they, they go about their business and then you have the owners that's the guys that are there they own it they live it they breathe it they're the ones who are the pure subject matter experts in the job. And that's the owners. That's who we are. That's who the guys you want to associate with too. In any department or any agency, you want to associate yourself with the owners. Well, I want to move on after your career. Um, and I want to talk about this charity and I want to mm. talk about a couple things before the charity and then why the charity is in place. Now, the question that we've kind of, danced around the whole time you did a ton of deployments you were gone for a lot of your career now were you married the entire time i was but i was well no i was married to uh another woman at the time when i first joined the military um moved to uh you know i, I was i was in austin texas got married there joined the military i did one deployment with her came home um, that night to basically a divorce was, you know, like this isn't working out type thing. Like, Oh, okay. Um, was not expected. Didn't, didn't see the writing on the wall, did two more deployments. And then after Ramadi, you know, maybe a week later being in town, I met my current wife, but that was, a you know, a, a, a an event that really shaped the rest of my life. I mean, I'd come back from Ramadi, wrecked my motorcycle like the second day been in two two fights already you know just going down a slippery slope happened to meet her at a uh, a friend's birthday party uh the day i wrecked my motorcycle i was still bleeding when i first met her like 
literally still bleeding through my pants and I wrecked my motorcycle in. Met her and was like, yep, here we go. This is it. It, it really, you know, set me, set me straight. So I ask all that to ask this. Mm-hmm. We've talked about having a family to, to support you when you retire, but you really need a family while you're doing the job. Part of this charity that you do and the biggest thing that you guys strive for is to take these guys who are going down that slippery slope like you were. And and do you even know why you were going down a slippery slope? Do you do you have it pinpointed why you were? Multiple deployments, combat, like back to back to back to back, um, living fast. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, it's like, you know, the third world doesn't seem to put a, a higher price tag on life as maybe a Western world does. But as you continue to see death, Sometimes it starts to degrade a little bit and you start seeing less value in life because you're taking it and you perhaps see less value in yourself. But I think a lot of it was just constant movement as never home, always going, either doing a workup, doing a deployment, back to doing it again. You just really had no time for any introspection at all. Like or a shark. I didn't, or I didn't make time for it because... I didn't know what introspection was at that point, probably. Okay, so two things from that. Mm-hmm. When you came home to that first divorce and you said mm-hmm. you didn't see the writing on the wall, you didn't even know that that was coming. Mm-hmm. Does that put you on that path? Does that start you on that path where you're like, fuck it, I'm going to do what I'm going to do? Oh, 100%. 100%. That was uh, the, the path to self-destruction right there. It's like, cool, well, I guess this doesn't mean shit, so... You know, it was also a quick turnaround. It was during the surge. So we did a very fast workup and redeployed, which doesn't give you time to to plant your feet and see what's what. So like, well, cool. Let's just, uh, you know, drink a lot of booze and, you know, just not give a shit about much else. You know, you did your workup. You made sure you were there. You did your, you trained, you mentored, you did all the things that work. But as soon as you're done, you're like, you know, no drive to do anything else. So when you meet your current wife mm-hmm. and you say it's a changing moment, mm-hmm. that's going from racing in the green or the red constantly yep. to slowing it back into the green. Is there any kickback on that? Any trouble from not necessarily even her from you changing so drastically? No. And I love the expression race car in the red. Cause that's, that's, something we use quite a bit is just like you're constantly just pegged at those RPMs. And I was constantly pegged those RPMs met her. Um, I moved to Monterey to do DLI to learn French of all things. And we chatted, I I got my race car back down a little bit and we, we decided to buy a house together. You know, we didn't even date hardly. We just kind of, you know, talked, uh, talked online, hung out a couple times and I was like, let's, uh, let's buy a house. She's like, you mean with me? I'm like, yeah, let's buy a house together. That's one that's what I'm sitting in here with the green patch on the wall and the Yoda in the background. <laughs> and uh <laughs> but it and but immediately after we bought the house, I got back into the race car in the red sort of scenario, but with a different mindset. It was framed differently for me. There was hope, there was love, there was an energy that's indescribable unless you've you know been in love and you understand that. It's just one of those things where I was going back to workup, back to SEAL Team 1, back to deployment, going back to Iraq, to Al-Assad. But 
it changed my mind. It was, it was like I said, it was reframed. Now me, there's someone that I, I got to sure. interject though. But Please. that first divorce never fucked with you at all about this because I see that it rearing its ugly head at some point with you deploying with you. It never did. Oh no, it totally did. No, that fucked with my head uh, like it's cool. Yeah, you you, lo- you know lose a sense of self worth. Um, well, especially well, we don't I'm, see it coming. It was a sucker punch. It was just kind of like all of a sudden you're like, what the fuck? No, I no, no. We right what I mean is 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 when you're with your your uh, with your current wife. And you're getting ready and you go back over there. You say you're still running the red, but you have a different sense of purpose. Does that, does the thoughts of this all falling apart, does it ever creep up in your head? No, not at all. I, I might be uh, uh, the eternal optimist. It did that never, like when I first went on deployment, it was like, we just got married. I'm like, cool, you know, honeymoon and I got to go. That never crept into to my headspace. That's amazing though. Uh, I, I contribute that to, to my wife. It was just her energy and her love and everything else. It was just like one of those things like, no, this is where we're supposed to be in time. And and, and never once crept into my being that, oh, holy shit, maybe I need to. I, I knew I needed to slow down to be able to spend time with her, but never did I think once that she was going to, you know, take off based upon my job or my lifestyle or anything. Else. Right. So let's talk about those guys with this charity that that does, because that creeps into a lot of their heads, uh, the these constant deployments. And, and not even talking about, you know, special operators. We're talking about law enforcement, first responders, people that are gone a lot, people with very high-stress jobs. Um, how do you guys help them? So that's, that's one of the wonderful things is, so with Tier 1 Outdoors, um, it basically was created by uh, some game wardens that knew some landowners that had some other folks that um, were prior tier one level operators and they were in a bad way. And it was one of those things like, hey, let's let's get you out here. There's a fire pit. There's a lake. There's nature. And let's uh, let's chill and relax and just kind of talk if you want to talk. Don't if you don't. Um, eat good chow, tell stories, and and commute a little bit with other vets. And that's kind of where it started. Um, And then, you know, fast forward a few years, it became one of those things where like, cool, now we have Navy SEALs. I've got a Marsuck guy. We're getting some PJs involved. Dallas SWAT. um, a, A couple other different groups where we have guys who were seen, you know, seen too much. And they need this kind of thing. So it's it's an amazing creation that the original founders created that allows for guys with disassociated backgrounds, but something still similar is where I can sit in a blind with a guy who is a SWAT guy and saw some horrific things. Um, one, of, one of your previous guests. And we just have the greatest time. We just talk hang out at the gentle whisper we're telling stories we're bonding it's just an amazing experience and just like relaxes you you have guys who have similar but different experiences that allow you to create a friendship but it also allows you to tell your trauma if you will most guys in our lives don't like to say well my trauma but it does you you speak of like oh holy shit this happened i can't believe i'm still alive and i saw this guy burning alive cool 
oh yeah, I had one of these things where this happened. And you, you create this bond and then a deer walks by and then you shoot it and you're like, cool, let's go, let's go skin it and gut it. Um, or even if nothing ever happens, if nothing, no deer comes by, no turkey come by, no nothing. It's just, it's the experience of sitting there. And then we go back and you, you've, you've made friends for a lifetime because of these shared experiences that you can talk about. I don't know if it's nature itself that allows you just to be more open, but like none of us sit in the blind and just like, you know, stare at each other. You, you create the conversation. Maybe it's the silence and you just create conversation and you talk about whatever you want to talk about. And it really sends guys down a, a good road um, to let them explore what they've been through. That's what I, I love about the charity. And I, I was so fortunate to get involved with them when they asked me to be a part of it. I was just like, it, 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 it's, again, it's my, it's my raison d'etre. You know, it's my reason to be besides my family, of course, which is my, my huge reason to, to have drive, but the charity and to help vets and SWAT cops and narco guys and everybody else. It's like, that's my drive. I, I love getting up and thinking about what can we do next in the charity? What other trips can we do? How can we get funding? You know, what some guys like, Hey, can we do a cattle drive? Like, fuck yeah, we can do a cattle drive. You know, let's do a hunt. Let's do a horseback hunt. Let's do snowboarding in Alaska. Let's do fishing. Like anything we can do to get vets, cops together and to talk about anything they want to talk about. We don't guide the conversation like a therapist. We let them, let it evolve organically. I went on a way rabbit hole on based upon your, your question. I just like went on a free. No, that, free that's, that's what it's all about. <laughs> and, and I would say the question that comes from that is, cause I don't know. Well, I, I kind of know the answer, but <laughs> why don't, why don't the guys talk about that stuff? They do in certain venues. I think um, some of it could be, not wanting to kick anything loose in the brain. Some guys like feel very adapted from their experiences. They were tra traumatic and some guys just don't want to, don't want to face it because they don't want to kick something loose and, uh, and you know, change how they are. Um, I think other guys could be embarrassed uh, at how they responded to an event. You know, guys don't always respond the way they think they're going to respond based upon their training. Some guys have the um, survivor's guilt. I think that's a big one too. It's like, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't wrestle with that too much anymore, but it's one of those things like, well, why did I make it through? You know, why didn't, why didn't I get blown up here at this time? Or why didn't I get shot here? You know, it's, um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of different reasons. Everyone has their own reason why they don't want to discuss it. But in that venue with other vets who have been under something similar, it's a safer space to discuss stuff. They don't, couch it that way. They don't describe it that way. Well, you're sitting around the fire and you got some beers and you're just chilling and you're like, Oh man, this one time in this cave and this happened. And the guy's like, Holy fuck. That's crazy, bro. Like, how'd you get through that? And you, you, you dive into things you didn't know you wanted to talk about. And all of a sudden you talk about it. When you talk about those things. And when you talk about those things with those guys, does it ever spark anything with you? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, whether it's just, you know, flat out empathy when people are talking about, you know, something that I've experienced that was very similar. I'm like, yep, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. You know, and again, they could be talking about a very visceral experience and it'll, it'll conjure up, you know, a smell and a, a, a sound or like, you know, your jaw unlocks. You kind of like get that saliva failing back here. You're just like, 
Like, oh shit! Wow, I was just right there a second ago, and that's good. It's good. It's good to. Uh, I don't want to, you know, suppress any of those, you know, ideas or those memories. I want to be able to confront them and look at them, which is what I want them to do. I, uh, they shouldn't be suppressing these things; should be exploring it and, you know, talking about it. If they have reservations on what they did, that's a big one. If guys has a reservation on what they experienced or how they performed or or, or hundred other different reasons why they might second guess what, what they were doing there. It's good to discuss that. So yeah, it definitely kicks in uh, when they talk about a story. I'm like, fuck, yes, I've been there exactly. Or it might be the opposite. I'm like, fuck, I wish I was there for that. That's awesome. Just depends. Let's talk about the hunts a little bit. I want to talk about what you've done before, what you have planned for the future, because I, they're cool. You and I have talked about a lot of them. And then uh, I've worked with a couple guys that have been on them and they can't say enough good things about them. Alaska, Texas. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about both those first off. Right. So right now, you know, we're operating on a shoestring of a budget. You know, we're working on the, the philanthropy of, of landowners that allow us to come out. Um, some people donate a little bit of food. We have a chef um, named Jet Tila that comes out. He's a celebrity chef and he volunteers his time and cooks for us. So we have almost uh, no budget at the, at the current time, um, which is something we're going to work on and start doing fundraisers, maybe around Dallas, uh, Austin, maybe out here where I'm at in uh, California. Um, so it, it's a shoestring budget, but Right now we have two annual events. One is a fishing trip up in Thorn Bay, Alaska. We have a, a gracious uh, gentleman from Glen Rose, Texas that offers up his lodge and his services and takes us out. And that's one of the most beautiful um, mind clearing places I've ever been to. Just sitting in like the hot tub, looking out on Thorn Bay and a eagle swoops down and swoops up a, you know, halibut carcass that we'd just thrown out in the water. And just, you know, having a glass of scotch, I'm like, I am, I am here. I'm, I'm in the moment and I'm loving it. Uh, that's, I just that's wanted to one. wave an American flag just now. I just wanted to like, yes. <laughs> when, when that Eagle was like, <laughs> and like comes swooping down to grab it. Well, so I raised chickens before, uh, here in my, my suburban home and chickens have a happy dance. You know, they're kind of like, they do that. Eagles do the same thing, which makes them so less menacing. But this eagle had this giant piece of halibut, and he's, like, dancing around, and he's squawking and having a great time. I'm like, the eagle's having a happy dance. That's really cool. But uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing event up there. And then we have one that's down in Glen Rose, Texas, at a ranch. Uh, one of our board members, uh, his family owns, and that's, uh, I think, around 10,000 acres where we're able to hunt uh, whitetail and hog. Uh, Todd Huey comes out, uh, the hog father, and he comes out and lets us go hunt hog. Sometimes turkey, duck, whatever it is. Those are our two annual events that we have kind of solidified. Um, hopefully they recur every year uh, as long as we, we keep it going. Um, but now we're just trying to create about a five-year goal, a short-term plan where it's going to be 10 hunts per year or 10 activities. We're not even set on it just being hunting. Um, I'm working on one that would be a cattle drive um, out in New Mexico. We're doing a snowboarding trip up to Alaska. The great part about that one is the snowboarding trip is going to be run by um, the sister and brother-in-law of my best friend who was killed. Uh, he was a SEAL, uh, died during a parachute training. So we're going to go up there, snowboard with them as part of the trip. Um, what else do we have? We have some long-range out-ad hunting out in uh, West Texas. 
We're going to go to Possum Kingdom for some more out ad. Uh, the sky's the limit. And basically, we're hoping to get the word out to landowners, guides, anyone and everyone that's like, understands our cause, what we're trying to do, and then let us come out and hunt on their land and just and have a good time for these vets to let them open up whatever they want to open up or just relax in nature. I think it's one of the best medicines there is, is just getting out away from your phone, the computer, the desk, the family, everything, and just kind of almost forgetting about some of your responsibilities and some of the heavy things in life and enjoy some camaraderie on some, with some brothers and getting out there and just doing some primal skills. Like we talked about earlier, like I have adult onset hunting. Like I, like I'd mentioned, I, I didn't grow up hunting. I kind of caught the bug later in life and as I caught the bug, I'm like, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to gut an animal that I've shot. I don't know how to take that animal now and process it into something usable for my family to eat. And through tier one outdoors, I've been able to discover how to do that. And, you know, I even had my little daughter, I think she was six at the time and she's running the grinder in our backyard and I'm handing her chunks of deer and she's just stuffing the grinder. We'd, we'd bag up the ground uh, elk and, and we ate elk tacos for damn near a year. The first time I gave her a, a beef taco, she's like, elk? I'm like, no, it's beef. We ran out. She's like, oh. The disappointment was audible. I'm like, yes. <laughs> so she understood. I mean, my neighbor came over, and I've got like a, a, a shank on the table. And I'm just like cutting away. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, processing a elk. It's like, okay. All right. We'll see you later. <laughs> well. I, I think an important part of, of this organization, uh, something that you guys really strive for is the privacy of the members um, mm. is your utmost concern. And that even went as far as me and you. I asked you for some pictures and you said, I can't really do that. I, we don't want to release, you know, who's been on these hunts unless they thought it was cool and stuff like that. And, and you have to go through all that. And I think that's really important because like we talked about, people don't want to talk. People don't want to put themselves out there where they could possibly be called out by someone as crazy as that sounds, but that's why they don't take part in these things. They want to go to a place that's secure, safe, and they know they're not going to be called out for what they're doing and being seen as weak or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, you know, we take pictures the whole time, you know, every, you know, everyone's taking pictures and it's, it's one of those things where like, Hey, these are for us. This is for internal distribution only. Um, you know, I do ask like, Hey, you know, we do have a website. So if you're cool with us putting something on the website, then, then maybe, you know, we'll throw something up there, but some guys are still active duty and, and a lot of seals are closed lipped despite the sheer number of books and media out there about seals. Most of us don't want to put ourselves out there. This is my first podcast. And it was, I was still reticent slightly to come on just because this is not what we do as seals is get out there. And you're like, yeah, I mean, on my chest and this is how cool i am but it was a venue to discuss the charity which is way more important than my own ego and, and discussing things of that nature so it, it's it's it is great that guys can feel safe when they go out there we take a photo not one guy has been like hey you're not posting that right they know it they know it it's it's in our our genetic makeup as the charity when we at first were like we need a website other board members are like no, that's not what we're doing here. We don't want to put faces out there. I'm like, we don't have to do faces. We can do stock images. We can do pictures with people's backs, nothing identifying, none of our tattoos. We can do it, 
and still respect the privacy of these guys because that's paramount. If I can't secure their privacy, then they're not going to come out. And then they're not getting the benefit of what Tier 1 Outdoors offers. And the same thing with like Facebook and Instagram and all that. We're like back and forth. Like, should we make it? Should we not make it? You know, none of us are social media experts and a lot of us are, you know, in our 40s. And we're not, uh, uh, what would you call it, uh, social media um, natives, you know. So it's like we weren't quite sure, but we're like we, we can be respectful, we can be private, and we can still be poignant. How can people help out? Biggest thing is, uh, one, you can go to tier1outdoors.com. That's uh, T-I-E-R, the number one, outdoors.com and donate there because that helps uh, feed our guys. Um, that's the biggest thing is right now, you know, we have landowners that grant us an amazing opportunity to hunt on their property, but we still have to feed them, um, get them drinks, whatever else it is. So that helps us to get them fed throughout the entirety. Um, our, our, our five-year plan, again, besides 10 hunts or 10 activities, is that we pay for them from door to us back to the door, meaning we're going to cover their Uber to the airport, their flight, their luggage, if they have excess luggage, because you're flying with guns, you're flying with coolers. And then when we pick them up and then all the way back, and that's an expensive proposition where we're flying folks from California, Virginia, wherever to Alaska. Now that's where the expenses are really um, piling up. And right now the veterans and everyone else, they're having to foot that themselves. Not a single complaint from any of the guys. They love that they get to come out and do these activities for free, but we want to offer more. We won't, We don't want to be a strain on the guys that are like, hey, you can come to Alaska. You have to pay $1,000 to get to Thorn Bay uh, with all your stuff. So that's the biggest thing is go to that. We're on Instagram, and, and uh, I still haven't made a Facebook page. i got to do that here this week. Um, but, yeah, just helping fund that. And then if you have anyone in your lives that's hearing this that is right now we're only dealing with special forces operators whether they're green berets marsoc pjs um you know green berets and then tactical law enforcement so the guys that have probably seen a preponderance of the bad shit happen whether they're you know narco guys or they're swat officers whoever it is if you know guys in their life that need this then please have them email us and or, or go on our website and just find us and reach out to us because that's more important than the money is getting guys who need this and get them out there and get it involved with the organization and just go out for a hunt, go out for a snowboard, go out for fishing, whatever it is, because the last thing we want to see is guys not reach out and then start to circle the drain and end up pulling the plug on themselves because we've seen it too many times. You're a, you're a good man. Uh, you've got a good cause and I'm, I'm happy to help you guys out and, and promote this as much as we possibly can. So here's a couple of ways to get a hold of these guys. You can do tier one outdoors.com. That's T I E R the numeral one outdoors.com. You can find them on Instagram at tier T I E R underscore one O N E underscore outdoors. You can find them on Instagram there. You can also find them on Facebook at Tier 1 Outdoors. Um, 
if you want to get a hold of these guys and you want to help out, the best way to probably do it would be to go to tier1outdoors.com. There's a donate now button. You can push on it. Um, and then there's also contact information. If you have someone that needs to get a hold of these guys, that's the quickest way to get a hold of them. You can always get a hold of me. Everyone knows how to contact me on this show, and I will get word to them. And uh, we will see what we can do from then. Remember, right now it's two. They got an Alaska trip. They got a Texas trip. But in the next five years, they're hoping to have over 10 activities a year. Um, and it, it only grows from here. Everyone that's ever been on this hunt, Dave, has said it's awesome. They have never been on a better hunt. So we want to get these people involved, get them out there and get everyone to help you as much as they can to push this because this is really needed especially we talked over and over again tonight in these fractured times we need to get these guys some the guys and girls we need to get them some some time away some rest to get them back to who we know they are so once again guys tier one outdoors.com tier underscore one underscore outdoors on instagram you can find them on facebook I think that's going to be it for the show. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. You get to see the pictures that we were talking about tonight. You get to see how much Dave looks like Chris Pratt uh, <laughs> while he was in the in the guat. Uh, we... Uh, <laughs> You can you can nice. check out you can check out everything that he's doing guys. Thank you so much Dave for coming by telling us about your amazing career, everything that you've done and about this charity. We we want to help you get it as far away as we can and uh get more people involved in it. So that's going to be it for the show guys. That's Dave, I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys later. Bye. Thanks a lot DJ. I appreciate it.